this is a webinar conversation on why artists are selling their music catalogs. This has been one of the hottest topics of 2020 in the music industry that has shaped how people are talking about the value of music, what people expect for the future and where things are going. And this is something that I've gotten hit up about quite often. Some of you may see, and I was interviewed about this recently, but it's just hard to capture everything that's happening in a three minute soundbite. And there's so much more. And I also wanted to talk to people that are experts on this topic and work in this day in and day out. So I am glad that I could be joined by friend, colleague, Carl Folks, entertainment attorney at the Folks firm that specializes in entertainment, music specifically, and publishing. Carl, thanks for joining, man. Yeah, I'm excited. I think the internet's been sort of buzzing about this topic for, you know, obviously more recently, but, you know, even the past six months, this year has been pretty fascinating in terms of catalog acquisition and publishing in general. Yeah, it's one of the things that has changed a lot, a lot of this was already starting to happen before the pandemic, but we'll get into all of that, all the reasons why. And we'll also get to hear a bit from you all as well. So just some quick housekeeping for the webinar itself. As I'm sure you saw, everyone is muted except for Carl and I. So the way we're going to do it, this will be the flow of the conversation. We'll do a quick overview of what the topics are going to be, how we're going to break down the webinar. And then after that, we are are going to have about 45 minutes of conversation, and then we'll have the final 15 minutes of Q&A. First thing we'll do is we'll talk about what it actually means to sell your publishing catalog because Carl's an attorney and expert on this, he'll break that down and also how it differs from selling your masters. I think that's a topic that a lot of people that are listening probably understand, but some may not. So it's always good to level set. And then second part of the webinar, I will talk a little bit more about some of the big sales that have happened in 2020. Who are the artists that have been selling their catalogs, where they're going now, who are the people that are buying them, so on. The third part of this, and this is where we'll spend most of the conversation. Why is this happening? Are there any cause for concern? What do we like about this trend? What do we not like about this trend? And I think it'll be a good chance for Carl to talk about what would he advise for his clients and what would be advised for others that may ask us because this is a top of mind thing. And then we'll also talk about one of the hottest topics this week, Lil Wayne and Young Money reportedly selling the masters for the Young Money catalog. We'll talk all about that. And then, as I mentioned, we'll save the last 15 minutes for Q&A. So if you have any questions throughout the webinar, I see many of you are already hitting up the chat in the Zoom that's there. Feel free to put your questions there and we will save them and we'll do our best to answer either A, the best ones, or B, the ones that have come up quite a bit in the Q&A and we'll read them out. So please put them there, type them, and then we'll answer the best ones there. So with that, let's start off with what does it mean to sell your publishing catalog? There's a bunch of people reporting on this, a bunch of people that I don't think are reporting on this the best because of how complex the music industry can be. But Carl, what does this mean? Generally speaking, if someone says they sold their publishing catalog, I think without more detail, I'm assuming it's probably a full sale, meaning all rights to all your publishing. In publishing, once again, those rights are usually derived to songwriters and producers, people who compose the music. It's the underlying copyright, not the sound recording, which is the master. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But that publishing, usually owned by songwriters or producers, 
you know, you could bracket that. I think that's the one thing that's not being reported. Like it doesn't have to be a full sale. It could be a part of your catalog. It could be 50% royalties, 50% ownership. It can be bracketed in, in, in a lot of different ways. And I think those are happening as well. But when I hear the selling of your pub catalog, I'm probably assuming it's a full catalog sale. And that's like, you're selling all rights on both sides. You're selling your publisher share, you're selling your writer share. And, you know, you're seeing it happen these days with some of these investment funds. That's the big key there, that if you're selling 100% of the catalog, then you're in most cases giving up the full rights to that catalog. But we've seen deals for 70%. We've seen deals for 50%. In a lot of those cases, you could still maintain some of the control and say about where your music ends up getting put out or how your music is used in the marketplace. Right. You don't have to sell all your catalog. When some of these sales are happening, I think Ronnie Jerkins, I think, was a really, really good example where he kind of talked about didn't sell all his stuff. He sold a certain portion of his catalog and sort of pick and chose which ones he wanted to get rid of and maintain his other songs in full value. So, you know, you could carve this thing out pretty much the way you want if it's worth value. That's the key. And for those that don't know, Ronnie Jerkins, his stage name was Dark Child. So, so many of the hits from the 90s, early 2000s, so stuff that Brandy did, Destiny's Child, and plenty of other artists too, Tony Braxton. He had sold a portion of that to Hypnosis Fund, which is one of the major players that has been buying up a lot of these song catalogs. And just for people for context, how does that differ from selling your master's? Hopefully you're in a position that you have some say of your masters or your publishing, you know, if you're an artist, but the master is the sound recording. It's usually what labels own. It's what you distribute, you know, via TuneCore or DistroKid. If you're not with a label, it's the owning of the sound recording and publishing is the underlying composition. So usually songwriters and producers, you know, some other people. A&Rs might have some publishing if they contributed to a song or some other players might get a piece of that publishing, but it's, it's normally reserved to songwriters and producers. And that's the big difference. So here's a quick list of some of the big deals that have happened in 2020. When we're talking about this six, eight month stretch where so much of this has happened, here's a few of them. L.A. Reid sold 100% of his publishing catalog to Hypnosis. The Dream, Jonte Austin, Timbaland, Sean Garrett, RZA, Mark Ronson, who's done a bunch of songs from Amy Winehouse to Bruno Mars, Uptown Funk, even outside of hip hop too, you have Journey, Barry Manilow. And that's just with one fund, Hypnosis. As you mentioned, this is a fund based out of the UK. It started by this guy named Merck. And he was a former manager for Beyonce and a few others. So this is someone that was in the music industry, but has then started their own fund. But then there's been other funds that have been doing this as well. There's this group called Vine Investments that bought Calvin Harris's catalog. And the numbers aren't official there, but some people have said it's been over 90 million. Other people have said it's been as high as 140 million. The funny thing about Calvin Harris is that he has all these songs, but two of his biggest songs have been with Rihanna. So you just think about how lucrative it is for an artist if they have some of the biggest songs of a decade that do go out. You also have 
funds like Shamrock. Shamrock was actually the fund that had just purchased Taylor Swift's masters. So not her songwriting, but her masters. You have Round Hill. They have stakes in The Offspring, Kiss, Matchbox 20. So a bunch of artists. And then you also have groups like Imagine Dragons. They had sold their publishing not too long ago for $100 million. And Imagine Dragons isn't a group I would necessarily consider to be the biggest group ever, but they had a number of hits, especially the past 15 years that were always on the radio and they were able to do quite well. The Killers is another one too. There are just a lot of artists that have been doing this recently. I think the one that caused a lot of the big headlines was Bob Dylan. He had sold his publishing catalog for rumored between 300 and $400 million not too long ago. And that was to Universal Music Publishing Group. So now you have an idea of who a lot of the artists that have been selling them. The buyers is probably an even more interesting conversation. As I mentioned, on one side, you have these music investment funds, which have truly started to take advantage of this opportunity as best they can. There's a few reasons why this is happening. We'll go into all of that. But these investment funds, as I mentioned, Hypnosis, Shamrock, Round Hill, Elridge, these are purely started to be able to take advantage of the money that can come from music publishing, from that revenue. And they are wanting to at least own these assets and realize the financial benefit of them into perpetuity. But then you also have the traditional publishing groups. As you mentioned, you have your universal publishing group, you have Warner Chappelle. These are some of the ones that are more known within the music industry of doing this work. But some of these funds are trying to block the music investment funds from buying some of these catalogs. So there's a bit of conflict and a bit of frustration there about how that whole thing is getting managed. And then you also have the artists themselves. Many times they are the songwriters. So if they don't sell or give away these publishing deals, they are the ones that ends up retaining most of the rights for it. However, if you are a major label artist, which most of the artists we named are, there's a chance that you are going to probably most likely either A, sign away your publishing at some point, or B, if you end up getting it back, it's because you did some type of deal like Michael Jackson or like a Beatles or some of these other groups that had done pretty strategic things earlier on in order to at least get back some of the money that they would have recouped from that had they owned it from the start. So it's a really interesting landscape with a bunch of different players. Carl, anything else to add on that? Everything you're saying is making me sort of phone and, and, and want to talk about why this is happening, at least why I believe it's happening. It's such an opportune time for people to sort of buy a catalog for a couple of reasons. The biggest reason is touring is done because of the pandemic. You know, no one's touring, no one's out there getting money on the road. So that's one of the first things you got to think about. Why are so many artists willing? Why are so many songwriters and producers willing? Probably because they have less income coming in. You know, obviously the switch from hard copies to streams in general kind of decimated some older artists' pockets just because, you know, that price point was just a little bit higher, obviously, on the, on the CD side as opposed to streaming. But I think investors and capitalists and people with money are taking advantage of the time. That's one thing. So don't underestimate the pandemic having a real influence on why catalog sales are escalating. Another thing is tax implications. You know, I've read some good stuff on this, but I don't think people have a good enough understanding on this. The biggest thing for me is 
just understanding how one-off sales are taxed versus continuous personal income. So say a catalog is generating a million dollars per year, like say some of these bigger catalogs, right? You're probably getting that 37% top rate tax that's usually taxed at that level. But when you're doing a one-off sale, it's a 20% capital gains tax. Now, you know, under Trump and under the past four years, that capital gains tax was 20%. Joe Biden has been vocal about, you know, proposing a tax plan that is raising that number to 40%. So you're talking about a one the tax implications on a catalog sale. You're talking about doubling that tax. You know, I think the pandemic and taxation play a major part in why a lot of people are cashing out right now. And we'll get to some other stuff as well. No, I agree. Those are legit cases, because especially with the pandemic, if you can't go on the road, then not only can you go on the road in 2020, who knows how many people are going to be able to go on the road in 2021. And when venues open back up, there's a limited supply of how many artists can tour in a particular spot. So either A, you are going to get either forced into a less ideal time, or you're going to have to push that out much further. And it's tough if you're an artist where you're making an overwhelming majority of your money on the road. So that's real. So having that lump sum coming in to offset that does make a huge difference. And Major difference. Another reason why I think investors are looking into publishing in particular, I think there's a lot of reasons to believe that Mechanical royalty rates are going to go up. You know, obviously there was a proposal in place where they were going to jump 15% and Spotify and some of these companies are are fighting it. And that's why, you know, you you get these headlines like Spotify is trying to sue songwriters. Essentially, that mechanical royalty rate is supposed to jump and get a little bit more. So more money is coming out on the publishing side. And I think it's only going to get better uh, on the publishing side. We look at the streaming split. A dollar of revenue is generated on Spotify, about 58% goes to the master holder. About 30 stays with Spotify or Apple Music and around 12, 13 cents on a dollar goes to the publishers. I think that's probably going to even out a bit more. The sound recording is always probably going to hold more value because that side is the person injecting marketing, really, really exercising control on those songs. But, you know, I do think royalty rates will get better for publishers as well. So I think there's a real reason to believe I think royalty rates are going to get better, especially on the publishing side. But I think in general, when you look at that streaming bucket, you know, we're all trying to figure it out. I just have that feeling streaming rates are going to get better for artists and songwriters and producers. And I think that's something you have to reject as well. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. And just so people know, you mentioned the mechanical royalties, but for the people listening, how does that differ from performance royalty? Mechanical royalty dates back to like ancient times, like literally. Mechanical royalty is generated every time a song is streamed, every time a CD is pressed, every time a vinyl is pressed. So, you know, the reproduction of that composition, you're getting a mechanical royalty. And mechanical royalties are paid out on the publishing side. So I always get that question a lot. It's not a master recording royalty. Labels don't get mechanical royalties. People who have their publishing, you know, get the mechanical royalty. So those are two key factors there, just with the key things you said. One, tax implications, and then two, the fact that we're in a pandemic and artists can't tour. Two other big factors I think are going on here. One, in the streaming era, we just have more finite data 
on which songs perform well, which songs are the most valuable assets to have. And this may seem odd, but that wasn't always the easiest data to come by. Before this, it was either measuring album sales and assuming how well or popular certain songs were from that album. And that wasn't always necessarily the case. If I was to go buy a CD, let's say like when the Carter 3 came out, that was huge and sold a million records that week. That CD makes the same amount of money. A little way makes the same amount of money, whether or not I listen to that thing once or I listen to it for an entire year. Now things are a little different where we can determine, okay, if I do listen to it for an entire year, how many times am I listening to a million or how many times am I listening to any of these songs? That data matters because that can then be used to then predict what those royalties will be moving forward for each of those songs. And that then expands to how attractive and how likely that song would be to be used in a docu-series, to be used in a commercial, to be used in a movie, TV show, film, or any other type of medium where publishing money and royalties would come through for the payment of those. That's one thing. It just gives us better data to measure. That, in a lot of ways, has been happening for a few years, though. But one of the big reasons why this is happening a lot more in the pandemic and in this economic world that we're in right now is because the interest rates to borrow money are just so low. And because of that, it's going to make it much more likely for some of these investment funds to A, want to and be able to borrow money at a cheap rate, and B, being able to benefit from the time value of that money also being attractive because of the low inflation that there is right now. Because if you're spending a hundred million dollars on a catalog by someone like Calvin Harris, who's collaborating with tons of hip hop artists, you're going to be more likely to want to make that type of deal now than you would be in a economic boom period where the interest rates are very high and it's an attractive time. So in a lot of ways, a lot of these things have made it a seller's market. And because of that, and I think this is where this conversation is really going to get interesting, these funds are willing to buy these catalogs at a very high rate, a very expensive rate, because people have bought and sold music catalogs and publishing catalogs for years. What's different now is that they're willing to pay much more. So a typical valuation for these catalogs, let's say before this wave happened, if someone sold their catalog for 5X or even 10X what the expected royalty revenue would be for that publishing catalog, that would be considered on the high end. That would be considered an expensive purchase. But the market has just exploded so much more in the past few years, especially these past eight months, where some of these funds like hypnosis are paying 15x, 18x the return for these catalogs. They're obviously doing it because they know that they're going to get a lot of money for it and they feel like it's their worthwhile. But in a lot of ways, that's the most money that that artist is necessarily going to get unless they are actively managing the publishing for their catalog, or it's within the hands of someone they feel like can do that. So that's also what's driving up these rates. So let's say, I'll just use them again as an example. Let's just say you are a LA Reed. Let's say he sold his catalog for a hundred million dollars before this wave happened, maybe he would have only got 60 and you would have wanted to keep your catalog for $60 million. It also has sentimental value, of course, but if this fund is going to be willing to pay for it, for a hundred million dollars says two things. One, 
they are clearly expecting to make more than that on that money. So that's why they're going to buy it from you. But you yourself, at least in your position, may not be in the position that they are to maximize that value. So you'd be much rather to sell that for a hundred million than you would be for the 60 that you would have gotten three, four years ago. That's the part that's really interesting to me. I think that's pushed a lot of the sales that have happened, but it also makes me wonder how much more is going to be earned on the back end from the people that do own these publishing catalogs now. Yeah, that's an amazing point. You know, I think there's also like, I think everyone out there just following this sort of looking at what's happening, you got to look at the type of catalogs that are selling too, right? I mean, the quality of record in most of these catalogs are pretty high. So, you know, the value that they're going to get back in terms of the X, right? You know, Dan said, you know, 15X, 18X, it's going to be fairly high. You know, I think the average seller, it's probably not in that category. They're not Bob Dylan. They're not, you know, Dark Child Jerkins. A lot of people on on platforms like Royalty Exchange or other, they might have a song or two that might have performed well for a three or four year peak. But for the most part after that, you know, especially in this era, called the microwave music era, right? Where, you know, songs are here today and going tomorrow. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens 10 years from now in that space, just because I think that marketplace is good. I think there's two different marketplaces. There's obviously the big catalog sales, you know, over at the top. I also deal with a lot of catalog sales or song sales at a smaller, more immediate rate where, you know, songs that might've been in the back half of the top 100, did well for a couple of years, but they're pretty much non-existent in terms of making any income for that songwriter or producer. So therefore, they might go in a royalty exchange and say, hey, you know, I'm just going to take my, say, 45, 50 grand on that and call it a day. I think there's such a delicate balance between why it's happening, what factors you should be looking at, and what you should be thinking about in terms of before you sell, you know, what's your sort of cost benefit analysis? Because I think that, you know, a lot of those things work so in line and it's a fluid conversation. There's really almost no right or wrong. It's, it's all predictive. Let's talk more about that microwave area that we're in right now, because I think that's another factor that people feel is behind this. There's an argument that because people feel like songs and albums and everything that comes out, even by the superstars is here today, gone tomorrow, people feel less confident in the ability for artists to make songs now that will be as valuable as a Bob Dylan or a LA Reed or a dark child type catalog. And therefore that then increases the value of those songs that are already proven, which makes the music industry and others involved with it much more concerned about making an investment in some type of song that has come out in the past few years or further on. What do you think about that? I think it's very true. Look at the streaming window. Like how long have we been tracking data? How much information do we truly really have in the existence of the music business on streaming? It's really like a, what, a 10 year window, <laughs> like, right? Yeah, We're looking that. at, you know, music business has been around a long, long time and we're looking at a 10 year window and we're basing these catalog sales on these 10 year windows, in my opinion, because, you know, even for a lot of the legends, their stuff is being consumed differently now, right? It's being consumed, you know, on Spotify or Apple Music. It's all predictive, but, you know, predictions have always, you know, have been wrong. You know, I think some investment firms are probably going to get beat. You know, they probably bought too high on some stuff only because, like I said, I mean, you know, 
I mean, a Calvin Harris catalog, for example, is, is super interesting. I mean, that's even like a style of music that we've seen kind of come and go, at least his earlier songs. I know he sort of adapted to the sound as years went on, but, you know, was a lot of his earlier sound, you know, it was sort of EDM. I don't want to speak too much on what I don't know. That sound kind of went extinct. There was like an era where, you know, everyone was, you know, at these festivals, you know, listening to that type of music. And then all of a sudden hip hop sort of just blew up even more and kind of just blew that stuff out the door. And so what is Calvin Harris's catalog, you know, going to stream 10 years, even 10 years from now? I don't know. And it's interesting. So I think for him in his head, he probably was like, yeah, I don't know. And he's probably seen the fluctuation even in the limited data that we have in regards to streaming. So I think it's super interesting, but I love the personalized attack that everyone should take, whether it's your client or whether it's you on whether you should sell. I think that part of it is like, you know, you could produce like a 40 page document, like analysis on whether you think this person could sell. I think it's that detailed. Yeah. The Calvin Harris port is interesting because now I'm just thinking about what are those hip hop records that are going to be those timeless ones that at least came out of the nineties, right? I can think about a song like a more money, more problems, or, I mean, there's plenty others, but that song, I don't know if I've went three, four month period of my life where that song hasn't come up in some type of setting. Right. But do I know that's necessarily going to be the case for thinking of a song that's been big the past few years, like a sicko mode or a God's plan. Like, are those songs going to have that same decade by decade impact? Sure. It may go diamond and have all of these crazy type of records, but I feel like those records are more a symptom of how we measure consumption in this immediate era of how billboard or all these places mention it. And it's not exactly the same, like riding rich to the box, topped a bunch of charts this year in terms of how long it was on, but 10 years from now, is that song going to have that same type of value? And are all of these tools that people are using to measure the value of these songs moving forward going to be able to accurately do that? I think yeah. that's a, it's a big question. Yeah. You, and you also have to remember, I don't know how much of a factor this is, but it should be. Copyright doesn't last forever. I think for the most part, most investment firms will probably be okay, at least in terms of recouping, because it's not a question of if, it's probably when. And maybe that when happens a little bit longer than they would expect. Like Bob Dylan is still alive. So, you know, usually the general rule for copyright is it's 70 years after the life of the author. So, there's a real window there for you to, to capitalize, but we, we just don't know. You know, I think if you're Bob Dylan, you know, you say, sure, I wish I would pass this down to my estate or something like that. But when you, you, you're not realizing, hey, not only is this asset getting less valuable, this asset's getting way less valuable. You don't have forever to make money on this. So I think the life of copyright plays into it as well. I don't see enough of people talking about that. So I think it's interesting. I think the timeline thing is important because as much as, you know, people that are fans of your Bob Dylan or your Dolly Parton and Stevie Nicks, some of these other artists that are considering to sell their catalog or have sold their catalogs, that's only going to appeal to a certain generation. And eventually when that generation is no longer consuming music, Gen Z isn't going to like take up and become big Bob Dylan fans in the same way that the generations were before. I mean, there's always going to be old heads, people that want to pick and find who are the legends of the past, but I don't necessarily think that's always going to stick. So I think that's interesting. Another part of this though, that I'm thinking about is that 
these firms are willing to pay, as you mentioned, 15x, 18x, 20x multiples, a very high amount for this asset. That means that they are expecting to get not just that much money, but even more money for it in the future moving forward. And let's assume that for those are taken, especially some of the songs that we may think may be more proven hits, let's say they are successful with that. You as someone that may be a bit conscious of ownership and how important that is in music, especially for artists that are putting this stuff out. Does any of that give you any type of pause or any type of concern about how the ownership of music will continue and whether or not this is creating some type of precedent of who is really going to be earning more money on these assets moving forward? Yeah. It even gives me more of a kind of like a sadness in a sense where I feel like this is again, another time where like artists are not owning their intellectual property. And it seems like this is a red hot space that seems a bit distracting. It's one of those moments where it's someone dangling a carrot and you're not thinking long-term, you know, a lot of people selling these catalogs always say, you know, I could do a lot of stuff with the money, but like, do you necessarily have a track record of doing good things with, you know, the money you've gotten from your music? Do you have a track record of turning, $20 $20 million into $200 million, it's hard. That's really hard. So if you're not thinking about your legacy, your family, things like that, which I feel like maybe some people are getting blinded by the carrot that's being dangled, I think 30, 40 years from now, we might be sitting here again looking at like, you know, some of the publishing catalogs that have been sold that are being revived through a bunch of different stuff, right? Because I feel like new technology, new medium, there's been so many things that have happened even just over the course of the past couple of years. And I hate to bring it up, TikTok, but TikTok has revived a bunch of records from the dead, like just songs that were just dead. And they had a new life and exposed them to a bunch of new people. And in a way, you know, it, it sort of has that same quality of just exposing it to a new demographic. I think music's going to be reworked in a bunch of new media and uh, technology it's one of those things where I probably wouldn't, I would advise most people not to sell, but you know, I think there's always a multiple, right? That's sort of my thing. There's always a multiple. That's a tough thing. It's like, there's a dollar amount for everything. You want to see people own their keep because it reminds me of that thing. Master P said, right? We have a billion dollar industry and we are creating billions of dollars for people, but this industry is making millionaires, meaning that the artists themselves are millionaires, but the people that are owning what the artists do are the billionaires. So how do you change that, right? You change that through having ownership or starting companies that have a stake in this. So for me, it's a few things that it's nuanced, right? Because let's say that one of these investment funds like a Hypnosis or a Shamrock or Ron Hill Capital, not only are they owning the asset, but they are going to be strategic in how they can make sure that asset gets into the most places that it can so that it can continue to get more of the royalty money that they want to get from it. But what does it look like for someone in hip hop to have then started a fund like that, that does that type of thing? And I understand that publishing groups are intended to do this, but there's clearly a different strategy and perspective from how these music investment funds are operating versus how Warner Chappelle or Universal Music Publishing Group is operating. Rock Nation is obviously getting into a bunch of different business interests. They're all over the area of entertainment. Where's the Rock Nation investment fund going to come? I mean, someone like Jay-Z 
could use his leverage to raise nine figures, similar to how hypnosis has raised nine figures. Why can't he do this? Because then if he's doing that, then there is a, a bit more ownership where it's like, okay, the people that are from our culture that help contributed to it are the ones that are helping to at least own a stake in this. They're getting expertise on their teams to help push this forward. And it isn't just another example of the dynamic of a record label or someone else trying to do this when they don't really have the direct connection or relationship that someone like a Jay-Z would. I think one thing that we're sort of trusting is sort of just because a lot of these companies have music people involved, especially hypnosis, right? There's like, you know, the board features a bunch of prominent former executives and songwriters. We have that sort of trust element. We're not looking at the paperwork, right? You know, I haven't done a hypnosis deal. I've, I have been involved in, in a couple song sales and smaller catalog acquisitions, but, you know, I haven't done a deal with your know, hypnosis. So I don't know necessarily what, you know, their contract language is reading, but not to even just the future of metadata and, you know, legacy, but it kind of goes back to your point about, Maybe a Jay-Z or somebody, you know, from the culture had a stake in ownership. I, we'd feel a little bit better, but, you know, who knows what, you know, some of these investment firms are going to do with kind of destroying the legacies. They kind of have like a passive, hey, I'm not going to do anything. We're just going to be the silent owners. And we just don't know. You don't know. Like, I don't believe that to be true. And I think the history of America in general sort of has a predatory especially as it relates to black artists. So I'm just not even that bullish on, you know, what this means from a legacy standpoint and controlling destiny, like, you know, sync approvals, where the music goes, you know, you're just not controlling the destiny of that music anymore. I don't know how much value is there, right? That's sort of intangible, but, you know, there should be a number on that part. Like, what does that mean to people when they're selling these songs? Yeah, because I think about Universal, the reason that they had bought Bob Dylan's catalog is because they wanted to try to block these funds from doing it. And their whole rationale is that, okay, if we're buying these funds, we are a music company and we're going to feel like we're more invested in the artists. That said, plenty of artists have had plenty of issues with Universal Music Group over the year. And they're not even their own company. They're owned by Vivendi, you know, a European company. So sometimes it could be hard for me when I hear that oh, well, this group is trying to buy it. So that group doesn't buy it. And it's like, okay, well, are your two groups that different when it comes to this particular aspect of what we're trying to push? It's interesting. I mean, there's a number of layers here. I think that another reason that we didn't mention, a lot of people have been at least using the fact that this is a non-correlated asset of music royalties being something that is consistent. You could expect time and time again. However, there's an interest beyond the non-correlated aspect of it, because if you are able to control it in a way where you want to maximize its return, you're going to be basing it off of projects that are happening elsewhere in media. And some of those projects are related to the success of how things are from an economic perspective. So sure, there may be a baseline of what you expect, but there is still at least some aspect of correlation with the economy one way or another. So it's interesting. There's a lot there. But yeah, I guess before we get to Lil Wayne and then to Q&A, anything else on these publishing deals? I think both continue to obviously report and follow it. But, you know, time will tell. I think, you know, we're going to have to do one of these again in 10 years. We're a little bit older and wiser. And the publishing catalog and, and master selling space is a little bit older in the streaming area as it relates to the streaming area specifically. But it's kind of a wait and see thing. And I think we're going to see a lot of different moments over the next couple of years, especially, like I said, with taxation and other things that I think are, are super important. 
Agreed. All right. So we're going to tackle this Lil Wayne situation and then we'll do Q&A at the end. As many of you know, there was an article that came out from Music Business Worldwide last week. Well, actually, two weeks ago, there was notice from a lawsuit from Ron Sweeney, who formerly worked with Lil Wayne at Young Money. And he put out a lawsuit. And in the discovery from this lawsuit, it said that Lil Wayne had sold his masters to Universal Music Group back in June. Well, at further discovery in this lawsuit, found out that not only did Lil Wayne sell his masters, he also sold the masters of Young Money's catalog, which includes the masters of Drake and Nicki Minaj. This is very surprising for a few reasons. One, it sold for $100 million, which Okay, grand scheme of things may sound like a lot of money, but when you compare that to some of the price of these other catalogs, and you're thinking about how valuable the music of Lil Wayne, Nicki Minaj, and Drake have been the past 10, 12 years, they're three of the biggest 10, 12 artists in all of music this past decade. And that's how much they sell for compared to someone like Taylor Swift, whose masters just sold for 300 million. I mean, the comparison is less about whether or not Taylor Swift is worth more than that, but I don't think anyone would think that those three artists combined, their masters are worth a third of what Taylor Swift's masters are worth. So it's been a bit of a difficult thing to understand because it doesn't seem like this is the type of deal that necessarily happened on the open market, but it's a bit frustrating because it seems as if We've always been a bit weary of the business practices that have come from cash money. I don't necessarily think that Birdman has always been the most reliable business person in his decade of how he's run business, but in some ways, that's how he's been able to do what he's been able to do for better or worse. And it's just frustrating that once again, we see some type of head scratching deal that comes from this camp. What are your thoughts on it? I think there's a lot left to be understood. It just doesn't make sense, right? $100 million. Maybe he didn't own all of it, and maybe that was his portion for Nikki Drake and himself. I think that kind of makes more sense. You know, hopefully that was the case. You know, if he ended up selling that catalog for $100 million, that'd be one of Universal's biggest deals, you know, of all time. But, you know, I think it goes back again, you know, as we talked a lot about the publishing value here, but masters are worth so much more. Even just when it relates to streaming, again, the streaming breakdown, you know, 58% sort of going to that master, that sound recording owner, 30 staying with Spotify, and then, you know, 12, 13 going to the publishers, you know, there's just so much more value there. So yeah, it's like four or five X the value. Yeah, it's like four or five X the value. So it's like if Calvin Harris's catalog sells for, for publishing catalog sells for a hundred million And, you know, Lil Wayne, Drake and Nikki and, you know, all that stuff, you know, that's selling for a hundred masters or selling for something's not right. You know, there's clearly some broken contracts and broken business there and maybe on a fraction, maybe cash money still had, you know, 50% or something like that. And, you know, there's something we don't know, but on the surface, it wouldn't make sense to sell for a hundred million. And, you know, there's probably something prominent that we don't know. Yeah. That's where I landed too. Cause I think a lot of people hit me up. Like, can you believe this? And I'm like, well, like I said, we don't know all the information. I mean, young money is 
essentially still very much tied to an offspring of cash money. Cash money got money and at least got some money from any type of stake that would have been sold if there was a 100% ownership stake sold in any of these three artists. So we can't look at it in isolation. That's why Lil Wayne's deal technically was with Young Money, but he was also signed to Cash Money as an extension of that. And then as an extension of that through Universal. Universal also at least had some ownership stake in that. So we thinking about it, okay, is this a way that Lil Wayne is then trying to sell to be able to get some quick money, but also look at some other things from context, right? What else did Lil Wayne do this past summer, the past few months? He went out and endorsed Donald Trump and clearly got money for that. So if you are in some type of situation where you are either A, making deals or doing things that may not necessarily seem like they make the most sense, but you need some type of money or promise or commitment, Who knows? There's just a lot of factors at play here. So with that, we'll open it up to questions. We got a bunch of them here. So if you have any questions, feel free to put them back in the chat. Let me scroll to some of the more interesting ones that I saw. Oh, this was a good one. Said Carl, if I'm hearing you right, you might guess that under Biden's administration, these types of deals are slightly less advantageous for the capital class. Would you agree? Yeah, I think it's slightly less advantageous for obviously the person selling, but as more so these bigger catalogs, that's going to make a a massive dent. I think it becomes a less sexy proposition anyway, just in general, like for everyone involved, just you're not. uh, The big thing for me was like, hey, the personal income, you know, 37 percent tax, the top rate tax, 37 percent versus that 20 percent. That was a pretty easy selling point when that's not there. I think, you know, especially from a tax perspective, it's just a less sexy proposition. This is less of a question, but more of a comment. Someone said, Carl about to be the first lawyer turned rapper. What do you think about that? No, <laughs> not me, not me, man. My rap days sailed away a long time ago. I don't know. You might have some of that master P, you man. I see the basketball clips you're posting. <laughs> you know, <laughs> everybody's a multi-hyphenate now. Thanks. Someone asked Carl, what is your thoughts about a platform like Royalty Exchange? I really like Royalty Exchange. I think it's sort of a transparent way for people to go out there and raise and sell your stuff. I mean, like how many people actually know investors <laughs> that are willing to buy you know, pieces of their songs or buy a song or catalog in general? So I think Royalty Exchange is, is pretty cool. I've had some clients sell records or sell songs. They're interested in songs on royalty exchange and it was a pretty seamless and cool transaction. So I like royalty exchange. I think they're super important in regards to decentralizing and democratizing maybe the opportunity to go out there and sell some stuff. But from my experiences, I think they're dealing with more of a everyday type of seller as opposed to, you know, clearly like the Bob Dylan's of the universe. So I actually will look into royalty exchange. If you have some songs Say you have you know, 15, 20% on a, on a couple of songs that, that are doing okay or maybe had their moment but are not doing too well now. Or yeah, I would look into maybe just you know getting rid of that song or whatever it is. I know you said it's not at the level of some of these private deals happening with the Bob Dylan, but if you have an idea, how would the multiples compare? If someone's selling their catalog for or making a deal on Royalty Exchange for 50,000, like you said, a few of your clients have, like, how would that compare to what they would earn on that in a given year? Yeah, it's definitely a smaller multiple because they're just less earning 
songs. The songs just aren't. Most of the times you're not selling a piece of continuously streaming records. But, you know, for songs that are doing okay and you just sort of want to you know, move on, you need some capital, you need to put down on a house, whatever it is, it's not the 15, 20X. It's definitely not that. But, but I fathom there is a couple songs on that platform that go for that, but it's not the same. Okay. Another question here. This is more of a clarification question. People are asking about where does OVO sound fit within Drake and within Young Money, Cash Money and all of that. So OVO sound is under Warner. So it technically is independent from Drake himself as an artist and where he is signed. So you'll see this a few times happen with artists where they will start a record label or some type of joint venture under a different label than the one they're actually signed to. And that's what we saw with Drake. So he technically is part of Republic Records, which is under Universal, which also has both cash money and young money. But Warner is where OVO Sound is tied to. And then another question I saw here is, do I think Hypnosis will eventually sign new artists to administer publication deals? I do not. And the reason I don't is because they are much more interested in the songs that have already proven themselves as being hits. And that's where they want to put their money towards. There's been a few interviews that the CEO of Hypnosis has done. And yeah, his whole thing is already trying to pick the winners because he feels like even those songs are underutilized assets and pushing them forward. So yeah, it may sound you know a bit crazy. Like, okay, well, if you already have so much of a catalog in Bruno Mars, why when you just want to sign him to a future deal. I don't necessarily think that's how it would work. As much as Bruno Mars may have marketing and things behind him, there's no proof that the next song that he does is going to be as big as a Uptown Funk or 24 Carat or any of those other type of songs. So I just don't think that that would happen. One of the things I'll piggyback on is like the new acts are just way riskier. I mean, I think you just have to understand that most record labels, most publishing companies they're making most of their money on catalog music. And I'm talking about the big ones, the records that have been out for a while, companies that own those classic records, those temptation type records, songs yeah. like that. The Motown catalog. Yeah. Those catalogs is where most of these labels and pub companies are winning. And I think in the same space, like, you know, hypnosis says, Hey, our model works because we're not chasing after the new stuff. We're chasing after uh, songs that have a proven history of success or somewhat proven history of success. And therefore we're really campus. Maybe the upside isn't as glorious, but you know, for the most part, I think their data is telling them that they're not really going to miss on this. And, you know, when you start signing new acts, that data is probably going to say you have a larger chance of missing. Agreed. All right. A couple more questions before we finish up. Let's see. Someone had asked uh, just a basic question about how the ownership of masters works, where you can either license it out or you own it yourself. Yeah, I do think that we're seeing more deals where artists are licensing out their masters as opposed to giving pure ownership. I think there's a few things that change with the dynamics of those deals, though. One, they're much more likely to happen to the people that have a little bit more clout. So that doesn't mean you need like Drake or Travis Scott level clout where you're already proven as the biggest artist. But I think you've seen someone like an Lee Choppa sign a joint venture, which obviously gives him more points on his record deal than someone that just may try to sign a straight up contract with Warner Music Group. So that's one instance there. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And you'll probably get less money 
it's just a different type of deal. But I do think, it, you know, the next 15, 20 years, that deal will start being a little bit more regular. But there are certain points that you're going to have to emphasize. I mean, like, you know, if you want that net profit license deal, you want to own your stuff, you might not get a million dollars up front. You probably won't unless you have uh, streaming data that, that shows otherwise. And it's a different type of deal. You're not going to get as many perks. You're probably not going to get someone as as invested maybe in the success of you because they only have a certain limited time to collect and maybe they didn't spend that much. You know, I think something to always remember is things that people spend on, they're probably more likely to care about. It's probably their bigger priority. I just gave a kid $1 million or you just gave that number one draft pick, you know, $10 million. You're probably going to build a lot around that, you know, that $10 million you just gave out. And, And a lot of that works the same in music. So, you know, it's a different deal. It's a different deal. Well said. It's like that line. If you know your bank loans you $100 and you can't pay it back, you have a problem. But if the bank loans you $100 million and you can't pay it back, then we have a problem. And it just speaks to the leverage change that happens when there's more money at stake. But yeah, we are at time. So thanks everyone for attending, answering, and giving great questions. This was fun. Carl's for the people listening here, where can they find you? Where can they follow up with you? I know you just put the tag, but if you can let people know too. I'm over at ESQ folks. That's everywhere. You know, you can shoot me an email. I'm probably not going to answer too many detailed questions, but I try to put as much information out there as possible to contribute to the conversation and really just provide education. So yeah, reach out. You know, I'm always trying to put as much content out there that a lot of lawyers aren't. And that's sort of the platform I'm trying to build. So feel free to reach out. Feel free to connect with me um, at ESQ folks on all platforms. Yeah, I know me and Dan are going to really do some cool stuff, you know, in the future together and individually. So, you know, this was just sort of a precursor. Likewise, bro. No, I'm glad you could do this. This was fun. And yeah, thanks everyone for joining. You know where to find me. We'll be in touch. Take care, y'all. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell at least one friend about this podcast. Word of mouth is still the best way to grow. Go to Apple Podcasts, go to iTunes, leave a review, rate the podcast. I will screenshot and share the podcast ratings on Twitter and Instagram. That can encourage more people to share the podcast. And if this podcast is your first introduction to Trapital, then make sure you check out the rest of the content. Go to Trapital.co. That's T-R-A-P-I-T-A-L dot C-O. Sign up for the weekly newsletter. Get all the content there. And also shoot me a text. That's also a great way to stay in touch with Trapple content. You can text me, Dan Runcie at 415-234-3074. Thanks again. See you next week.